In the Hebrew Scriptures, Leviticus 25.10, the writer stresses the importance of freedom. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. In the Gospels, in John 8.32 and in 36, the writer identifies major sources of freedom. First, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And second, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Attention, salute, pledge. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my path and will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. Attention, salute, pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Attention, salute, pledge. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, one brotherhood, uniting all mankind in service and in love. From the time I was five years old, every summer for two weeks in vacation Bible school in our church, I placed my hand over my heart and repeated those three pledges. You probably noticed that at that time, the words under God had not yet been inserted uh, into the pledge. Little did I know that I would spend a major part of my life searching for and grappling with truth at the intersection of those three pledges. Repeatedly, I have tried to resolve struggles prompted by conflicts between my faith and my civic responsibility in a way that I could remain true to the Bible, my faith, and my nation. The First Amendment to our Constitution has provided guidance and a real good way of knowing how to think about this uh, when I want to be faithful to my faith and I want to be faithful to religious freedom and I want to be faithful to my country. Defining religious freedom has helped me immensely know how to go at that desire to be faithful. What has gone on inside me personally is now playing out publicly and it's not pretty. A, a quiet though fiery rite of meaning of religious freedom is remaking America. The time I've spent preparing to deliver the 2020 Strickland Lectures compelled me to review my long and continuing pilgrimage of working on religious freedom and questioning 
whether or not I could confirm that my conclusions reached a long time ago were still in place, in play for me in the importance of religious freedom. For years, Christians and Jews have debated over whether or not the Messiah had already appeared on earth or is yet to come. The proper spirit with which to discuss religious freedom was epitomized to me by my dear now deceased friend Arthur Hertzberg, a rabbinical leader in conservative Judaism. Arthur said, I am waiting for the end days when the Messiah will appear or reappear. At the moment of the Messiah's appearance, he said, I will make my way, if I can, to the front row of the welcoming committee on that day. I will very politely and very differentially say to the Messiah, forgive me, but may I ask you a question? Is this your first visit to the world or is it your second visit to the world? My rabbi friend continued, until that day, I am willing to bet my life that the Messiah will say it is his first visit here. But I also am willing to give my life to protect the freedom and lives of all of those people who believe the Messiah will say it is his second visit. I want briefly to share with you five important truths that I have learned, given thanks for, and tried to live by during all my work for religious freedom. Number one, freedom is religion's best friend. That there really is no such thing as mandatory religion. Uh, I will always remember how my heart broke as I watched a baptism forced on a young woman by her new husband. I had the same sensation when a dear Jewish friend described to me the damage that was done to her life when she was forced to say she was a Christian. To this moment, that friend fears the vision of a cross. Meaningful religious decisions require personal freedom and volitional thinking, even if otherwise a person is in one kind of prison or another. Number two, the founders of our nation bequeathed to us a secular government, appreciative of religion, but always independent of religion. They made religious freedom the cornerstone of all of our other freedoms and the stability of democracy. The great patriot Thomas Paine, who said long ago, give me liberty or give me death. And as if responding to today's news, remarked, these are the times that try men's souls. 
also told us spiritual freedom is the root of political freedom. As the union between spiritual freedom and political liberty seem nearly inseparable, it is our duty to defend both. The architects of our nation's structure knew from experience that intermingling of religion, government, and politics would weaken each one and ultimately produce a crippled nation. Watch out. The mindset of religious extremism is prone to deceptions in which extremists cease serving God and start playing God. Losing touch with the value of diversity and devoting themselves to an oppressive uniformity and becoming blind to the reality that they are hurting their own religion rather than advancing it. Be careful. Number three, religion, government, and politics cannot be separated in an individual's thoughts, soul, beliefs, priorities. Though a clear and definitive separation between these three institutions is imperative for the good of the nation and for the living of our days. History is replete with documentation of the truth that every time religious institutions and government institutions have become entangled, the religious institutions have lost their authority and compromised their integrity. When we mix religion and politics, what we get is politics. Number four. If the religions in our world do not learn to live together with respect for one another and cooperation with each other, along with accepting people who have no religion, our world will never have peace. And as the largest religion in the world, Christians have the urgent responsibility to model religious freedom and walk the path of justice and of peace. I've come to see the religious liberty clauses in the First Amendment to the Constitution as products of sheer genius, a remarkable formula for cooperation in the most religiously pluralistic nation in the world how we honor and obey religious freedom significantly impacts our values, priorities, citizenship, health care, sexuality, women's bodies, elections, foreign affairs, and interest in peace. Number five, religious freedom is never secure. Religious freedom is never a done deal. Far too many people want religious freedom only for their religion, but not for the religions of others. My friends, we are at a pivotal moment when it comes to the health of religious freedom in our nation. 
Our forebears saw religious freedom like democracy. It's an experiment. Both remain in today as an experiment. Not in my lifetime have I seen the frightening fragility of this experiment. The last word on this issue has not yet been spoken. Freedom and religious freedom are not yet secure. To celebrate freedom without protecting freedom ultimately is to lose freedom. Now, in support of religious freedom, what do we need to do? We. We need education. We now have two or three, maybe more, generations of young people and middle-aged adults in this nation who do not understand religious liberty and thus have little interest in the attacks on the wall of separation between the institutions of religion and institutions of government. Well-financed and powerful religious and political leaders are tirelessly working to change the definition of religious freedom that is in our Constitution. They are traversing this nation, peddling lies. There is no guarantee of church-state separation in the Constitution, they say, emphasizing that contemporary Americans should fulfill the Founders' vision of a Christian nation, a nation governed by Christian principles. Very few people challenge the revisionists because they don't, not, they don't know the vision, the articulation of the principle, and the actual provisions of the founders of this government. That must change or everything else will change. In this religiously pluralistic nation, religious liberty must be a non-negotiable. Amazingly, the founders perceptively prepared for and intended to provide for religious freedom. When the Virginia House of Delegates debated Jefferson's state for religious freedom, Someone proposed to amend his words, the holy author of our religion, by adding Jesus Christ. In his autobiography, Jefferson recalled, the insertion was rejected by a great majority in proof that they meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection the Jew and Gentile, the Christian and Muslim, the Hindu and infidel for every denomination. We need to take a long look again at this great gift. We need to talk about it together and monitor each other to stay true to religious freedom. E education, though, is not enough. We need citizens' support. We have to work while we teach, lest we allow the development of a situation in which it is too late for us to teach, or we are forbidden to teach. Values, values are not worth a flip if 
they aren't translated into actions. It, it is important that we not talk about it, but do something about it. It is in the implementation of values that make a difference for good. It is time to act supportively for religious freedom. We need political action. Time-consuming, energy-demanding political work must be done to preserve religious freedom. The, the battle is not ideological. Strengthening and defending religious freedom should be a bipartisan effort. People are trying to change the Constitution, alter the definition of freedom in our Constitution. We have to pay attention and mobilize people to protect our first freedom. Sometimes that will mandate careful strategizing and hardball political action. We need judicial preservation. The importance of the judiciary staying true to the Constitution rather than uh, responding to the pressures of fear-based, selfish, and often self-righteous public expressions of religious bias is crucial. Nominations for federal judgeships are not in our hands, but we must carefully examine what is happening in the judiciary and voice our opposition when necessary. Now, I think I know the questions that may be running through the minds of some of you. Who and how can we do this? Who and how can we do what I am suggesting that we do? Well, there's only one correct answer to those questions, and it's in the preamble to the Constitution. We, the people. We, the people. We are the people to do this work. We are the government. And now is the time for us to get to it. We have to become evangelists for religious freedom, helping others to see the perils for the integrity of religion and the demise of vitality in our democracy if this constitutional provision continues to be weakened and ignored. Let me be starkly honest and painfully personal with you. I know this has been a difficult year in many ways. Since the days I retired, first from the presidency of Interfaith Alliance and then from the pastorate of Northminster Church, life has not been easy for me. All at the same time, the four issues that I care most about and to which I have devoted most of my life are in more trouble today than they were when I started doing this work over 60 years ago. It makes me sad. The realization is discouraging. Reality is that advocacy for progressive religion, protection for religious freedom, arguing for love as the highest and most primal value, and calling for responsible citizenship in this nation are under fire 
by strategies and less favorable with the populace than I find tolerable. Some days I want to quit. Just go away. Stop paying attention to the news. Relax. And because I'm realistic, I'm worried and I'm weary. I'm tired of people who feel that thinking is a sin. I'm tired of individuals who ignore the priority of freedom and automatically assume that anyone who favors the institutional separation of church and state is a radical liberal opposed to religion. I am tired of religious leaders selling their souls for a mess of political recognition provided by politicians eager to use religious leaders in the singular cause of their re-election to public office. I'm tired of deep divisions within our nation and other religions that should be peacemakers that are causing the divisions. I'm tired of political partisanship on steroids and the erosive effect that has on our democracy. I'm weary of looking for true patriots who place the welfare of the nation over the success of their political party. I I am tired to the point of hopelessness regarding the place of love and its priority in the basic institutions of our society and in what should be the most intimate relationships between individuals. Surely, surely many of you feel fatigue as well as the temptation to quit. But there's a challenge. Here's the challenge that stands in front of me like a boulder. I'm a religious person, a Christian, And I am an American, in that order, by the way. Neither my faith nor my patriotism has within it any justification for opting out, quitting, letting them have it. Just the opposite, really. My friends, we can't quit. It's not an option. We can't quit. Either progressive religion dedicated to religious freedom will be embraced or we will become a nation even more divided than we are now with endless struggles between fundamentalists applying pressure in multiple ways to dictate what everybody else must do, think, read, and say and people who have lost interest in religion resisting with whatever level and form of power it takes to save their lives from a dictatorship of fanaticism. Either people will learn the appropriate relationship between religion and government as well as the necessity of religious freedom or our nation will return to a pre-First Amendment understanding of religion and government in which each compromises, if not ruins, the other. Internationally, we will either learn the appropriate relationship between religion and government, 
or the future will be filled with escalating conflicts between religions and between religions and governments that often turn violent. Either love will find its proper place of sovereignty in people's lives, citizenship, and work, or we will see a continued deterioration of simple empathy and compassion, no help for the poorest and weakest among us, a lack of conscience about wars that allow us to hire soldiers and continue with our own agendas while fighting is fierce, and a mechanical type of personalized relationships in which people think going it alone is better than the trouble of living together and utilitarianism becomes the primary principle of sexual relationships and doing what is easiest, least troublesome, and only in good times will take the place of the passion of love that fulfills dreams, births children with integrity, and gives society a goal which most would rather reach whatever the cost than to lose at any cost. Either we will get back to the experiment of democracy, practice the art of compromise for the common good, and cross all lines that prevent cooperation, or we will lose our democracy, assault our freedom, and assure failure for the grand vision that gives breath, courage, and strength to our constitutional way of life. I guarantee you that Marge and Tom Strickland would join me in setting before you a mission that will passionately impact our city and our nation. I, I first learned about religious freedom in a Sunday evening youth program called Training Union, which met in the dark basement of the fundamentalist church of my childhood. Inspired by lessons on religious liberty as practiced by Roger Williams in Rhode Island, I learned the proper relationship between institutions of religion and institutions of government. That's what a church, that's what this church can do. Think of the positive changes in which this church has been involved. In 1772, a Baptist pastor named Isaac Bacchus, under threats of imprisonment like those realized by many of his colleagues, refused to pay the government's tax on religion. Through his tireless organizational and political work, Bacchus brought the issue of religious liberty to the attention of the Continental Congress. John Adams warned this Baptist minister that he might just as well try to alter the course of the sun as to win Congress's support for his ideas. But Bacchus would not be stopped. Bacchus, to the amazement of John Adams, spoke to the presiding officer of the Congress and got a congressional resolution setting religious liberty grievances before the General Assembly of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Eventually, when Massachusetts wrote a new constitution, Bacchus was invited to draft a Bill of Rights, 
which focused on a guarantee of religious freedom. Sixteen years later, in 1788, John Leland, another Baptist, mobilized other Baptist pastors in Virginia to question the wisdom of ratifying a United States Constitution that did not contain an explicit statement of religious freedom. It became clear that someone on the committee needed to run for public office. Leland agreed to seek election as a delegate to the constitutional ratification. His opponent would be James Madison, a man widely known for his support of religious freedom. To everyone's surprise, during the meeting of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, Madison balked at approving specific clauses on religious liberty. Everybody was upset. Leland was ready to run for office. Recognizing Leland's impassioned intent, people arranged for a meeting between him and Madison. Leland voiced the Baptist perspective on religious liberty, calling for a constitutional guarantee of complete freedom of conscience, complete freedom to practice religious beliefs, and an effective separation of church and state. Leland's presentation convinced Madison of the need for an amendment to the Constitution that would guarantee religious freedom. The two men separated, with Madison committed to support the Baptist position, and Leland agreeing to withdraw his name as a candidate for the, for the election. The rest we know is history. Madison brought the matter of religious liberty to the attention of the Congress, the members of which ultimately adopted the First Amendment to the Constitution. That's my heritage. That is our heritage. Remembering that past, we see with clarity the challenge of the present. The shape of the future will be determined by the actions or the passivity of the kind of people who are interested in hearing these lectures. In the spring of 1998, Walter Cronkite, known as the most trusted man in America, at a meeting in New York City, took me aside and said to me, in the work you're doing, nothing less is at stake than democracy as we have known it. Those words were in my mind every day. I had the privilege of working in this nation, strengthening and defending religious freedom, knowing that nothing less was at stake than the freedom, integrity, and vitality of both our religious freedom and our nation. For me, it all started in that small church where people wanted to preserve religious freedom in this land. Where will it start for you? You've heard the challenges. My, my friends, this is our moment, and we are the people who better grab it.
I hope that a few words akin to those inscribed in a church in Leicester, England at a difficult time can be spoken about us. In the year 1654, when all things were throughout this nation either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley Baronet founded and built this church. He it is whose singular praise it is to have done the best things in the worst of times. The promises that I made in vacation Bible school as a five-year-old child, not knowing what all religious freedom meant any more than being aware of the depths of what faith meant, remain in my heart, in my mind, in my actions. Today, with more understanding of both, though still eager to know much more, I pledge allegiance to my faith and the journey on which it continues to take me and to religious freedom and the honor I have had to work for all people to be free. So help me God. Amen.
Thank you.